Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here today. Happy New Year. Welcome back to another episode of Means of Creation. This is our weekly show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and the future of work. I'm your host, Legion, along with my co-host, Nathan Bachez, and today we're joined by our producer, Adam Kiesling. And for those of you who are here for the first time, this is a cross between a live podcast that we're recording in front of your eyes, which will go out onto all of your favorite podcast apps, as well as YouTube. But it's also a bit of an interactive hangout, like Clubhouse. So for the latter half of the show, people can ask questions, raise their hands, unmute, and actually come and chat with us. So it's a bit of a cross between those two formats. And this week is a bit of a different feel than our normal episodes because we're just going to casually chat without a guest, an external guest. And Nathan, Adam, and I are just going to have a conversation about various different topics that I think the community has expressed interest in the past few weeks. So we'd love to just pick each other's brains and then also spend more time with everyone in the community. So to kick it off, I think the topic that I really wanted us to start off with is a topic that is at the intersection of two recent pieces that both um, myself and Nathan published in December. So without coordinating, without even communicating with each other, Nathan and I published pieces about content creators and how content can have moats and defensibility. Back in December, we published our pieces within days of each other, Nathan on his Substack and me in HBR. And I think the Putting two me to topics. Shame. I'm sorry, that wasn't meant to be a flex. I also published mine in my Substack. <laughs> Substack is great. It was a great flex, though. You need to introduce me to your person at Harvard Business <laughs> And so, for those of you who didn't read them, my post was called Building the Creator Middle Class. And it was all about how today in the content creation world, there's basically a a superpower law where there's a small number of content creators that are extremely successful, making millions of dollars, have millions of followers, and basically capture all of the attention and revenue in the ecosystem. And then a super long tail of content creators who are basically making next to nothing. And my piece was really about 10 strategies for how we can fix that and make the whole ecosystem a lot more equitable and ensure that there's a middle class of creators. So not just a tiny segment of creators who are making money, but really make it such that content creation can be a viable career for lots more creators out there. And then when I read Nathan's piece coming out later on in that week, I I I thought it was so interesting because his piece, which was called Why Content is King, was basically about like why this power law exists, essentially, and explored all of the different ways that content can actually have moats. Traditionally, the belief is that content is not really defensible. You have to keep churning out content and create hits one after each other in order to continue to capture users' attention. But Nathan explored all of the reasons why content can actually create incredibly strong moats. And I thought that this was such an interesting piece when taken together with my essay. And it just really explains why there is a power law that's emerging on these social platforms. And so I think Nathan's piece celebrated how the top content creators can even emerge If you're a top content creator, that position can actually be very defensible. You can invest in these types of businesses because they are defensible and they have moats around them. But my piece was really exploring how we can help build everyone else up. 
So I don't know what my actual question is, but I, I was just thinking about this over the break and thought that yeah. those two pieces were really interesting. I have a provocation maybe that we could start with that I don't know if you'll agree or disagree with, but it occurred to me while I was reading and rereading your piece, which is maybe because the power law kind of thing and the moat and the compounding advantage thing is very real of being like a top content creator in, in a given category, that maybe there actually isn't going to be a middle class of creators. It's more that there will be dominant creators in smaller categories and there can be a proliferation of categories and there can be a more fertile environment for getting started but it still will follow the same power law as usual, basically. Like you can't, it's very hard to undo that. I'm curious if you would agree or disagree. Also, the thing I wonder about is to what extent is it actually inevitable, right? Like I'm questioning my own premise. Like maybe there are things you could do to like make it so that the number 10 creator in a given category just does better, right? Than, than they would currently. Yeah, I agree with you that I think it, I think there will always be a power law. I think Sherwin Rosen's paper, which I mentioned in my piece, he's an economist at the University of Chicago. He wrote this piece 20, no, 40 years ago in 1981. It's crazy how it was 40 years ago. And he talks about how technology is going to make it such that success disproportionately accrues to the best performers in a given field. And that's because technology reduces the marginal cost of delivering the next marginal unit of content or service or whatever. And in the old world, it used to be that the best performers could only perform to a set number of people who were physically present in a concert hall or could watch a performance <coughs> live. But technology makes it such that you can distribute a movie online to everyone or listen to a song on a streaming app. And there's no limitations at all to the number of consumers that you can reach. So he basically predicted super presciently that technology was going to exacerbate this power law. And I I think that's true. I think that for content, there will be mega famous superstars always. I think that like all of the reasons that you explored in your piece apply to content creators. I think there's really powerful network effects that they have. Users become familiar with them and don't want to switch to someone else. I think once it's really famous, they also accrue various cornered resources. They are able to access the best videographers, editors, managers who open up new opportunities for them. And it just, it's, it, they take off from there and continue to accrue success. And it becomes harder and harder for upstarts to catch up to that. But I do think that there are things we can do to make it such that a newcomer can still have a chance of being more successful than they would be otherwise without any sort of policies or intervention. I, I realized this yesterday when I started a brand new TikTok account and the second video that I posted has now reached over 100,000 views. That would never That's happen. Amazing. That would never happen on Instagram anymore because there's just not really like the app itself does not emphasize discovery of new content creators. So I think yeah. platforms. What was can the TikTok like? Did you do the whoa? <laughs> what did you? It's a. <laughs> that um, was my whoa. It's, it's a very bad whoa. <laughs> that was. I, I. I got what you were trying to do. It was reminiscent of it. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> it was reminiscent of it. <laughs> I started a new account for my side project called Side Hustle Stack. So our handle on TikTok is Side Hustle Stack, and we don't know what we're doing, but my my teammate Lila, 
who is Gen Z, so she's more native to this whole thing. She created a couple of TikToks, and one of them is actually doing super well, surprisingly. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel like there's a genre of TikTok content that's just like the useful thing. Like, I remember I saw a TikTok once that was like, before the pandemic, it was like how you can travel the world for super cheap. And there's this website that lets you like dog sit for people, basically. And then it's Airbnb, but it's free, but you have to like take care of their pets, basically. And it went, it was just had millions and millions of views. And there's definitely a genre of that. That's also what made, I think, like a lot of the iOS 14, like home screen widgets take off as people being like, look at what I was able to do to my phone with this. And this feels a similar thing where it's like, oh, do you want a better way to make money? Like doing something that you're more interested in, like here's a way mm-hmm. and all credit goes to you for compiling that, that resource. But like people want to hear about it on TikTok. It's not just people doing the woe which is fascinating. Yeah. Which kind of brings up the topic of like genres. But go ahead, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I didn't have anything really to add aside from the fact that there are so many like niche pockets on TikTok and people are interested in all manners of different content. It's not just like dance videos. I'm astounded every day by the level of creativity on TikTok. Yeah, Lee, so just on that, on kind of that point, uh, could you maybe describe what Side Hustle Stack is briefly and then talk about how you've, because you've had some people mention it in their TikTok videos that have gotten a lot of traffic. So could you maybe also mention how it's like impacted different people like using it or like that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So Side Hustle Stack is a website, sidehustlestack.co is the URL, which is basically a website that compiles all sorts of different platforms that people can use to earn income. So it's not traditional full-time jobs. It's all platform-based, super flexible work. And it's a mix of gig work. So we have things like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, etc. But there's also like micro entrepreneurship platforms on there. So Shopify, things like Upwork, where you can list your services and earn money. And then there's like a bunch of content creation platforms like Patreon, ConvertKit, etc. There's now over 100 platforms that are listed on the site. And the vast majority have been submitted by users coming in and wanting their website to be listed. We first seeded the site with about like 40 or so companies that I'd met over the years. And then after we launched, it's just really taken off and a lot more people are spending their information. And the reason why I built this or like the first spark of inspiration for this site came because in some of my past blogs, I've often included a chart about the future of work and different platforms that support different types of work. Actually, the first instance of this chart was my original passion economy post from last fall, where I had a really simple chart. It was maybe like six rows and it had like podcaster, video, content creation, virtual coach. And next to each one, I listed a few platforms that were supporting that new type of work. And I republished this chart again over the summer. I added a few more. And I realized every time I published a version of this chart, I would get so many emails and tweets from founders saying, you forgot us. Can you add us to this chart? We're also helping people create podcasts or we're helping people teach online. Did you purposefully ignore us or leave us out? And I was like, this is just so (laughs) overwhelming. There's like way too many companies for me to keep track of. I can only imagine how hard it is for someone who's looking to do work to even keep track of this, given that they they don't have founders writing to them all day telling them to be included. So why don't I, instead of making a chart myself statically every few months, why don't I just make a site and people can update the site with their information? 
So that was the genesis of Side Hustle Stack. And I, someone called it a platform of platforms, which I really like. <laughs> it's exactly that. And we initially launched on Product Hunt at the very beginning of December. We launched on Product Hunt, got to like number five product of the day. And for a while, we were thinking like, how do we get more users to this site? Like we have the supply side, which is all of the platforms wanting to list themselves because I talk to founders all day. But like, how do we actually reach the users who are looking for side hustles? And we didn't have any great ideas. And then all of a sudden, someone created a TikTok about it. And this TikTok was created by a college student who I think is like a sophomore or junior in college. I don't know her. I don't know how she found the site, but she created a TikTok and it's now at over 5 million views. It crashed our Holy site. Shit. It went viral on TikTok. <laughs> Multiple people texted me that they saw the, the site on their For You page and they were like shocked that my the site was just on their For You page on Twitter, on TikTok. And that got the ball rolling, like more TikTok users found out about it, more people have created TikToks about it. And that has been just the biggest driver of traffic to the site. Yeah, that's, that's side amazing. hustle stack. And then a couple of days ago, we were like, maybe we should just create a TikTok account. Like, <laughs> rather than waiting for other people <laughs> to do TikToks, we realized like, oh, we can actually just create TikToks too. Like, we don't just have to consume them. We can actually have an account. So we created an account on TikTok. That's amazing. And then one of the videos you posted did super well too. Yeah, exactly. So the most, ex we've created three total TikToks and one of them <laughs> has gotten to over 100K views just overnight last night. That's amazing. That's a pretty yeah. good batting average. It is. It's funny because I've been hyping up these other TikTok creators on my Twitter saying, wow, look at all these amazing videos that people have made. <laughs> and now startups are reaching out to me asking like, how do we do our TikTok strategy? How do we create viral TikToks? And I'm just like, to be honest, I have no idea. It just all happened accidentally. And now right. I'm trying to backtrack and figure out, deconstruct exactly what was the recipe to our success, but it was well, not like pre-planned or calculated in any way. Can I offer an observation that may, I'm curious if this feels like it explains part of it to you. Okay. So when I hear you tell that story, I, I'm hearing a network effect, which is really weird sounding. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. There's no network effect to this, whatever, but bear with me for a second. So you, first thing you did is just literally, I think in the fundraising deck, probably for your fund or like for the blog post that you were writing about the passion economy, created a graphic and that graphic named some people. And then the people who were in it were happy about that. And they pointed more attention towards it. And then the other people that weren't in it saw it and weren't happy about it and got in touch with you. And all of a sudden you're like creating this central hub of like where all these people want to reach each other and be seen, even in the earliest incarnation of it, which is this like tiny graphic in a post or something. And so then like it compounds further. So you create it into a notion that's like an actual database. And so it compounds even further and like to the point where it's this really well-developed product because everyone right. knows this is your thing. And so everyone knows it's like the central focal point for this kind of thing. And so if someone else is talking to their friend and they're like, hey, I'm interested in this kind of thing, they're going to mention your thing. Yeah. And so it's really, really interesting. I don't know point. if network effect is like actually precisely the best term, but it compounds in a way that is, it's definitely compounding. Yes. Yes. This is what you explored in your piece about content. Right. I feel like there is a network effect to this piece. It, like the site is a piece of content basically, and there is a network effect to it. 
And the site itself is, it's two-sided. There's the founder platform side of people wanting to submit their information and get listed and get in front of consumers. And then there's the consumer side. And I feel like the past four years of me being an investor has been building up like this side of the network of just my own relationships and like being able to even seed the website with platforms came through me directly reaching out to people, getting information, getting them to like share like earnings data on their platform. So I got the supply first and then the demand once they got to the site and found that it was valuable, it started taking off on its own. Totally. Adam, I'm curious if you have any other observations on what made Side Hustle Stack work, particularly within the framework of why content is the king, <laughs> because I feel like it's interesting to see if, or like any observations why why content is king may, may not explain it or whatever, because it's an interesting case study, A, and like just a thing that Lee directly did and obviously has a lot of context on. So we can use this as a case study almost to test some of the theories in the post. I'm just curious what you think about it. Yeah, I think I think the one thing that like immediately stands out is it's a type of content that helps people make money very directly. And so I think it, it's like one of those things that's very shareable. And I, that probably wasn't like intention necessarily of I should make content that like content that goes viral is content about how to make money really quickly. And I should, so you know, I don't think that's necessarily how it started per se, but like that's I think a very common thing, especially on like TikTok and, and like some of these things, even through SEO, right? Like all these like credit card deals or, or different ways to make money. I think that's a pretty popular content. And then, yeah, I think it's also going to be like a actually pretty valuable kind of little site because like you said, it's really like a marketplace of like data and supply and like that kind of stuff. And then also demand. And yeah, I'm really excited for you that it, that it kind of dropped off here. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, before it took off on TikTok, I didn't realize that Gen Z was so interested in side hustles. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading some data about how even as like a generation, like they're more a little bit more practical around money than like millennials because like they were before the financial crisis and like the whole education thing hit them especially hard as well. So yeah, it's cool to see. Yeah. No, totally. My my initial sort of hypothesis was in order to get distribution for the site, we needed to get it in front of middle class people in the middle of the country. So I was doing initially a ton of press outreach, reaching out to newspaper editors who covered economics and business and personal finance, and no one wanted to write about it. It was really really disheartening. Yes. There's there's only one one reporter who wrote about it. So I want to give him a shout out. Berber Jin at Business Insider wrote about it. He was the only person who wrote about it. Like no one else who covered economics wanted to write about the piece. And I was like, how are we going to get this in front of people who actually are going to use it? And then TikTok just came totally out of left field. And I've since realized like this demographic really cares about personal finance, ways to earn, like new jobs. I I think gone are the days where like when we were growing up, I think in order to just make side money, we'd go to the mall, we'd walk from store to store. This is how I did it. I'd, I'd go from store to store ask, are you hiring? (laughs) And then get a job for minimum wage. Like my first job in high school was being a salad maker at Panera Bread. I was paid like $7 an hour for that. And I just just went in one day and got the role. And I think people don't want to do that anymore. Young people don't want to do that anymore. They don't want to go in in person, type up a resume, interview, have to commit to a schedule, have to, yeah, be beholden to someone else's schedule and just earn a fixed amount forever. I think the idea of working flexibly, doing something 
from home, being able to apply on your phone from your couch is really appealing to them. And especially to do something that feels like creative and risky. And this kind of segues into one of the things I'm curious about from your piece, which is employers, basically the role of employer is to create a structure where it's very, it's almost 100% risk-free. It's possible that your job could go away. It's possible that company could go out of business or that you could get fired or whatever, but there's a very, they make the proposition very straightforward. If you do X, you'll get Y, where Y is like your salary or hourly wage or whatever. Systems that take away that shield tend to be extremely difficult to get started. So if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to do something like in the passion economy where there's much more risk and also potentially greater reward, then there's just inherently going to be a lot of people who like don't make it work. And I'm curious if you think that a lot, most of that risk that we see now and the failure rate that we see now is like inevitable or how much of it you think can be beaten back by better support, like training or like risk capital or all the things you outlined in the post that are mechanisms to help people get a boost essentially to help them get the compounding thing going. Cause there's still the compounding thing. There's not a compounding thing with like your regular job or whatever, but there is a compounding thing with, with passion economy things for the most part. I'm curious if you think that sort of boost to help people get the compounding thing going will make instead of 1% of people being able to make a living from it or like less, maybe could it be 10% or like how big of a difference do you think it can like really make? I think it can make a huge difference. From talking to content creators, a very common theme that I hear from them even if they're monetizing and they're doing pretty well, is that they just feel like they don't actually know what they're doing. Like they they have no clue if they're doing the right thing, if they're doing the wrong thing, if they're focusing on the right thing. Like no one is there, unlike a job where someone is telling you what to do and whether you're doing a good job at it. They just don't right. have that in the passion economy because you're basically a founder and there's no one giving you any sort of direction. There's no one else at at your company, period, but there's definitely not someone at your company telling you, like showing you how to do it the right way. So I have to believe that creating more support, shared learnings and guidance and giving people an on-ramp into some of these newer individualized careers will help a ton. Because I think people are all trying and doing like trial and error on their own individually right now and some are like accidentally succeeding like i feel like side hustle stack is an example of this we're accidentally successful but we don't know if we're doing things the right way if there's things that we should be doing that we're not doing we just realized that we should also create a tiktok account ourselves so that we can be tagged there's no one providing guidance and everyone is figuring things out on their own i think like new educational programs coaches um, consultants, teachers, experts—like I, I think they're—they have a huge role to play in developing this ecosystem. But the other thing that I just remembered as you were talking was, despite the power law that exists in content creation overall, where only a few creators are probably going to be super famous and the vast majority of people have a pretty modest audience, I think another path for for the creator economy to have a robust middle class is all of the downstream jobs that get created from content creators. So at the top tier of content creators, like none of them are operating on their own. They usually have teams. They have a video editor, a producer, a podcast editor, someone to help with graphics, website, tech, someone to negotiate deals with brands, et cetera. There's a team around them and that team is 
representative of the creator middle class. Going back to Sherwin Rosen's paper, like part of what helps build the middle class and create a ceiling for earnings is marginal costs and friction for doing like the next job or the next, like earning the next piece of revenue. And all of those like jobs that support the creator economy has that dynamic where you can't take on infinite number of clients. You can't edit an infinite number of podcasts. You can probably take on, there's a ceiling to it. And so there's a ceiling for earnings and there's like probably a floor for earnings. And so I think that represents a big piece of the creator middle class. Yeah, totally. Like it's interesting. Maybe there's actually two kind of separate things, totally separate. The traditional definition of the middle class is definitely more of the thing where you don't get any of the compounding, like winner take all dynamics, but you do get safety and a floor and like risk is almost completely taken off the table for you. Obviously not indefinitely and not totally, but it's a lot of it is taken off the table for you. That sounds a lot more like when a creator becomes really successful and starts employing people than a mediumly successful creator, if that makes sense. And and I wonder if creator businesses are just like any other business where there's like a small amount of them and when they work, they really work and they need support. So they hire people and that's how you get the middle class rather than there's like tons of creators who like are, are mediumly successful. The only way I could really see that happening is if we find a way to support a lot more niches, which like, or to allow for, and I think the, the way to support a lot more niches is like somehow like directing attention towards things that people maybe didn't realize they like and are very specific to them, but creates like enough interest that that, that thing is super <clears throat> fascinating to them or whatever. And so they're going to pay attention to it, even though like maybe there's only 10,000 people in the world who like want to pay attention to that thing. I'm a little bit less bullish on that than I am on like just lower rate, like with subscriptions and with direct user payments and courses and things like that, making it so you don't need as big of an audience to have a pretty good business. Like in the grand scheme of things, the everything bundle, our audience is tiny, it's minuscule, but we have a business that supports multiple people profitably because it's a subscription business. And so I think there's maybe room for a lot more things what we have, but it depends on norms basically changing and platforms building support for it. It's interesting because Patreon exists, even though still, even though YouTube technically has a native thing, but they're not really pushing it. So like, will TikTok ever actually push something like that? I don't know. Maybe there's just always going to be tons of friction to that or the type of content that succeeds on TikTok isn't the kind of content that people want to pay for. And so there's some trade-off, whether you're going for audience or you're going for the type of content that gets people to pay or whatever. It's really tricky. I'm curious what you think Mm -hmm. about all that stuff, Mm -hmm. Lee and Adam. Yeah, I really agree with your point that perhaps the analogy to really successful content creators is a company. Like most companies fail, some become really big, and the really big ones employ a large middle class of workers. That was the genesis of the real, like the actual IRL middle class in America in the 1900s of like corporations and then large workforces, especially of unionized workers who were able to negotiate their wages and achieve middle class wages. I think content creators are analogous. The successful content creators are analogous to businesses and will employ large teams. And there's a really interesting um, question in here that I wanted to address because it weaves into this point from Ron, who asks about, won't the big content creators just outsource to other countries like India, Philippines, et cetera, because there will be virtual tasks. I think if we look at the IRL middle class and look at the most common professions in each of those income bands um, that represent middle class jobs, most of them actually entail 
some sort of like geographic component that can't be outsourced. And most of them also have marginal costs, which was the point that I was making before. So those middle class jobs um, that are most common in America are things like teachers, primary school teachers, truck drivers, salespeople, nurses, et cetera. Exactly. Things where the work needs to be done in person, there's like a local geographic element to it where it can't be outsourced. And then there's also marginal costs. Uh, so for every for every patient that you serve, for every sale that you make, there's additional time that must be invested. And so that creates a sailing for earnings. I think a lot of the content creators downstream jobs are going to be of that nature. Not everything can be outsourced. When we edit this podcast, we need it to be edited by like a native English speaker who can watch the whole podcast and listen to it and edit it in a way that like flows. And I don't think anyone anywhere could potentially edit the podcast. I think for content creators, like they they will need on the ground teams to help with their content production and editing and business things and, and things like that. So I'm bullish that it could be a path to creating more middle-class jobs in America. Yeah, and I guess just referring on that in a couple of ways, one thing it makes me think of is, okay, what did this look like previously? Like I could think of maybe 20 years ago, Google was just becoming a really powerful thing. And now like an SEO agency or an SEO analyst would be a pretty common job, for example. And then another thing that we mentioned in the news roundup when Ali Abdal, when we talked about his revenue streams is like the difference between creating content for marketing for a business and creating content as a media company. And so you can imagine, again, an ecosystem developing around, around either one of those, like marketing services is a whole thing. And I still think there's a ton of, especially said like home services, nurses, teachers, and things like that, that, that aren't online yet. And so there's a whole private ecosystem around those kinds of services. And then also the actual like supporting creators as a more like typical media company, right? There's maybe one creator or a group of creators or something, and they need video editors and all these podcast people and things like that. And then there's, of course, like the really downstream impacts of the computers and like computer technicians. And we need people making manufacturing chips and people to clean those facilities. Right? There's, and, and maybe the creator economy is just a small piece of that. But yeah, again, more and more jobs that are, that are kind of created with technology around this realm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think for content creators to be able to, for more content creators to be able to be successful, I'm personally way more bullish on business model innovation and creators being able to stack different income streams like Ali Abdal and being able to sell different products and be a multi-skew creator, as Hunter Walk said, than for every individual content platform to try and make it extremely equitable among all of the creators. Like I think if TikTok, if we hypothetically, if TikTok had a hundred total views and five total creators, I don't think the right path to create the creator middle class would be to split those views equally among all content creators. Like I think that is actually business suicide for most content creation platforms, because in a world with lots of different options for consumer entertainment, lots of different social media platforms that you can go to, like these platforms do have to compete on the basis of surfacing the best possible content for consumers. Like you can't force them to watch less engaging content just for the sake of helping this emerging content creator. I do think that, yeah. that you can do more to like potentially test out like a, a long tail creator and to match users with niches that they might be interested in, but to push 
like to to do too much to artificially push consumers to long tail content, I don't think is the right strategy. Instead, I would like to see those long tail creators try and monetize through different means. Yeah, totally. I think there's so many things that can be done at the margin around that kind of stuff that it's even if it makes like a 5% difference, that's hundreds of thousands of people probably like achieving a different kind of life than they would be able to have otherwise. Honestly, I, I think the over overarching trend, if you like to take a step back from this whole conversation, is just even if you reframe it from here's a network of users creating content to here's a two-sided marketplace where there's distinct roles for creators and consumers, then all sorts of things start to unlock because you realize you need to create you need to treat creators differently and provide resources for them and provide like unlocks or once you achieve a certain level of de-riskedness or whatever, like of your content, that there's some audience, like maybe it's worth the platform doing some more investment in that creator to support them and to, and to help get them on the path. Because there's so many people that I think could be really successful that just fall out of the funnel um, because it's so hard. And maybe a one way to think about it is it's, it's like botany or something where like you plant can grow in a certain environment and then in another environment with slightly different conditions, it may die. And so if you just improve the like sunlight and the soil and all that kind of stuff, like in the water, just like a little bit, then at the margin, a lot of people may become successful and survive as creators that wouldn't have otherwise. And the cool thing about a plant is it has that same dynamic loop of the bigger you get, the more sunlight you catch, the bigger you can get or whatever. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as a creator in a lot of ways where there's the compounding loop thing. And so I think little changes could make a big difference, like just unlocking monetization earlier for people or just like the TikTok creator fund where just some people who aren't currently able to sustain themselves, like it's not sustainable yet, but it really could get there pretty soon. Giving a little boost at that margin could make a big difference. But I just think it's so fascinating how the whole shift from like networks of users, like the blurring line that we had between communication and media is now getting distinct again. And it's more just like platforms for media with some communication around it, maybe from people just to their friends and people they know, but like mostly messaging is becoming distinct from content, even though it's like platforms for content that are more open than the previous media companies were. Absolutely. I know there's a couple of other topics that we had in mind for discussing today during this episode that I'd love to also switch gears and talk about as well. So yesterday, Sahil from Gumroad published this really incredible, very radical, very unique piece about his personal view and the Gumroad philosophy towards the future of work. And in it, and this post is called No Meetings, No Deadlines, No Full-Time Employees. And it's basically this new sort of view towards work, which is that work should maybe just be a means to be able to live more of your life. So he, he says the future of work is not working. And he also mentioned that working on Gumroad isn't a majority of anyone's identity. People work at Gumroad as little as they need to in order to sustain other parts of their life. I think in Silicon Valley, this is such a contrarian view. Actually, maybe in yeah. a capitalistic society, this is just such a contrarian view of work because we've been taught from a very young age that work should be a core part of our lives. It's a conversation starter in many cases. It's like a very key piece of people's identity. And I I, I just thought it was really fascinating that he put the stake in the ground and said, actually, maybe work is just work and it's just a supporting activity for the rest of your life. 
but I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Yeah. One thing I'm always, I always think about is that when you, it, it's like this mentality, like when, when you own a, own a project or whatever, you examine all your options in order to get the task accomplished as efficiently as possible. Uh, and sometimes that involves other, you know, hiring people, sometimes that involves using software or things like that. But at a job, it's like sometimes there's this implicit assumption that you're supposed to be doing all those things. Um, and certain company cultures are better at this than others around, hey, make sure to continue to like outsource or make sure to continue to replace yourself right at a startup or something like that. But I think that's a really interesting idea of what, what if we all, it was more like a managing of a service or managing of a task or, or an ownership of something. And it was just making sure that it gets done in the most efficient way. And then you can spend your life and your identity kind of living living as normal, if you will. So I, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I, I think it's fascinating because I don't think it would have worked. You can't create Gumroad with that structure. You can milk Gumroad's existence with it because once these things get going, they have a life of their own and they maybe require very minimal ongoing support. Like Gumroad is an automated machine that like spits out money in a lot of ways. And if they wanted to fully milk it, they would, it would require very little. It's just like fix bugs and eventually it would die if that's all they do. But there's this natural life cycle for companies that, that always starts with you invest more and you're not getting anything out of it and it's not sustainable, but you're putting a lot into it, which maybe is just like personally a lot of your time or maybe it's a lot of capital, but it doesn't work at first until one day it does and it's you escape orbit and now you're just like floating in space and it's working and it's running on its own and you can have it on autopilot or whatever. And then now you can exploit it. You can take money out of the business. You can use the business to feed other things in your life. And that's radical, but actually not really. That's like extremely old school. It's like the idea is to own a business where someone else manages it. And then like you just get to keep the profits because you like own the thing or whatever, because you got it started because you seeded it with money or with your time or whatever. And that's a very old idea of how capitalism could work, right? Like the whole sort of idea of labor being alienated from capital. The idea is the capital wasn't like founders like Elon Musk killing themselves like working. It was like somebody who just like owned a factory because their parents owned it. And then like people just kept working there and you just keep owning it, but you don't actually work on it. You're just the owner. And so startups are like the crazy aberration, basically, probably exemplified by Elon Musk, who like famously just works himself to death, basically, or at least projects the image of working himself to death. And I think it's really interesting, like, how do you communicate basically like that people can shoot for that? It's like you can come to the trough and work a little bit and as much as you need or as little as you need in order to sustain yourself. And this is like a source of energy that you can feed off of rather than the phase where you're pouring energy into the thing because it needs it in order to survive. And then how do you, with that structure, reinvest enough into it to have it be sustainable for a long period of time? Because typically it's if you're not growing, you're shrinking. If you're not keeping up, you're losing ground. And it's just very hard to maintain that kind of like stable equilibrium for a while. Yeah, I feel like I I agree with what you said with regards to, I think this kind of stance towards work and what employment at a company is, I think it only works when you've reached that sustaining level of a business where it's already generating enough revenue. It's, It's a software business, so there's not that much you have to do to earn additional revenue. It just operates on its own. And I think a lot of marketplace businesses that have reached scale are like this as well. Like they they don't require that much product innovation. It has network effects. It just is self-sustaining. Whereas at the very beginning stages of a business, I agree with you that I think it would be really tough to get a business like Gumroad off the ground with this kind of philosophy towards work. And actually, I think it's interesting to go back to the origin stories of Gumroad, which is that it was originally a venture-backed company. It raised, I think, $8 million from Kleiner Perkins and other VC investors. And at some point, 
after raising that money, like he realized that this was never going to become a billion dollar business. And I think bought out some of his early investors, but like that initial capital was what enabled Gumroad to be able to build out the product, hire people, create a product that earned revenue. So there was some like initial spark or like resource that needed to be depleted in order for it to reach the sustainable phase where it could be just a revenue generating machine without taking that much time for anyone. It actually, it, it reminds me of another thing that I read this past week, which was, I shared this on Twitter, but basically there was a really tragic death of an employee for a Chinese business called PDD, Pinduoduo, which is a e-commerce marketplace selling a lot of agricultural products and bulk group purchase products in China. And this employee was working like nonstop, tirelessly left the office one day at 1.30 a.m. and just collapsed and passed away. And in China, there's this really pervasive ethos and style of work called 996, which is you work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And for many people, it's actually way more extreme than that. My my sister, not my sister, my cousin, who I call my sister, who lives in Beijing, she joked that during COVID, most people are working for zero seven. So all day around the clock, seven days a week, like you're never off because you're expected to be on call all the time. There's just this culture of grinding so hard and working constantly. And this death Mm -hmm. um, of this PDD employee sparked a national conversation online around what are we working this hard for? Like we're grinding to the bone. People are still not able to afford a home in the major cities. They are working this hard because it's enriching their bosses and the CEOs of these companies and the, the execs. But what are they actually getting in return? Aren't they just aging and dying and destroying their health? Mm-hmm. And I think it's raised this like debate around work-life balance and just the uh, reckoning with capitalism in general. I think after the economic reforms in China in the 1980s, with the free market, there was the glorification of wealth and economic advancement. But now it seems like the attitudes are changing a little bit where people are realizing that this economic system is actually not improving people's lives all that much or maybe their standards of life are improving but like they they don't even have the time to go spend their money totally it's fascinating because feel like it's so hard to define the right thing at a cultural level yet we get sucked into a culture because you want to do what other people are doing and it's very individualized. I think for some people, it's really healthy and great for them to pour themselves totally into what they're doing. But when you're forced into that, if it's not right for you, it's a terrible thing. And But people tend to do what other people do. And so it's it's just really hard. Like the whole sort of a live and let live attitude towards different approaches to work is just like, for some reason, it's hard to, it's hard to make that be a thing in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's very American to want to do work that is your life's work, right? Like we say that life's work because life is so inextricable from work. And we would all, we aspire to this ideal of doing work that we feel passionate about and making it our life's work and being so passionate that it doesn't even feel like work. And that's a lot of what I'm trying to push for as well. But sometimes I question, is that 
right? Is have, have we all been brainwashed by the capitalist system to believe that what right. we should be doing with our lives is work? I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's tricky. There's that famous stat, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like the number of hours that we work on average, I think specifically in America has increased over the past, it's like the 50s and 60s, despite all of this technology. And so there's also the right, that's like quite confused into the UBI uh, talk, which obviously got a lot of press a little bit more when like Andrew Yang was running and things like that. But that's also a question, right? Which ended up happening in a weird way with these stimulus checks in different not exactly the same thing, obviously, but there's, again, there's like that question, right? It's like, we have all this new technology that's being able to automate things and why are people working so much in certain areas and at certain income levels? And then we have lots of people who are unemployed and other people are underemployed. So it's like this weird reshuffling that needs to happen. And it's just, yeah, I, there's many solutions that are being worked on, but there's not clear that there's one, one that's going to work incomplete anyway. Totally. There's no one solution. <laughs> that is, I think, a good general purpose thing is i remember this quote stuck with me this is maybe like a philosophical note or whatever but one of the i I feel like when i was younger i was just like always searching for the silver bullet and i remember reading ben horitz's book and there's somebody in there who said it's a quote like there is no silver bullet stop looking for it you're wasting your time there's only a lot of lead bullets and just get going on that and the bullet war gun metaphor is not my favorite obviously but just there's no single thing and it it, i tie that back to just in general the premise of lee's essay was like there's not one thing that's going to make the middle economy the the middle class of the creator economy like happen there's a lot of things that'll help at the margin and so let's get to work or with broader how do you relate to work there's no one way of working for everyone there's lots of ways to make it better for everyone given their circumstances so let's get to work and it's just i feel like people waste a lot of time either searching for or debating over like single things that promise to solve lots of stuff and usually when people get overly invested in something like that it turns out worse for everyone (laughs) cryptocurrency but uh, (laughs) sorry oh my god nathan (laughs) yeah i agree i like the end of sahil's post for this reason he was like it's not prescriptive. He's not advocating for this style of work and this philosophy at every company. He says there are a lot of ways to make work. Ours is just one. I agree with that. I love that. I feel like we're entering into a new, hopefully more humble era where we've seen like what can happen when there's a lot of zealotry. And it was at first exciting. Oh, like this is inspirational. There's like new revolutionary stuff. And now I think we don't want more revolutionary stuff. We want like humility and incremental progress. <laughs> and we don't know it all. And we're just trying to make things a little better kind of vibes from everywhere in society. But, you know, particularly, I think also startup founders. So it'll be interesting to see because there's still the kind of we need more zealots crowd or whatever. Like we should. And, and there's a place for doing exciting things that are really big. But like having some incrementalism and some humility about it helps you do big things actually is the counterintuitive thing. Yes, I agree. It's, I think people's egos will always want to find the silver bullet and to make really decisive sweeping comments about what life will be like and what work should be like. But I agree that there's just a lot of variation and hopefully there's just a lot of incremental solutions on the margin that collectively over time will make a big difference. Anyways, so I think that's a good place to wrap. We try to keep this thing on time every week. And I just want to thank everyone for being here today and for being part of our community. I just dropped in a link to our Discord channel in this chat, which is valid for the next 24 hours. And we'll be back next week with a guest on the show. And thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope your guys' new year is off to a great start. 